Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and I'm the founder of Bold, a bipartisan digital television network on the web. We are committed to bringing the country together, to sparking conversations that inspire and empower people. You should treat uncertainty as your friend, and to not think of it as something to be avoided or something to shrink from, but uncertainty is actually the condition in which you must succeed. It's not a condition that you avoid, it is actually going straight into the fire, because if it was easy, someone would have already done it. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger, Writer and political analyst Carrie Sheffield founded her own digital news network, Bold TV. She explains how the media industry continues to be a challenge for women entrepreneurs and how she forges ahead anyway. Carrie, you had said as a child you grew up in poverty. Would you tell us about that? Sure. So my parents uh, are very devout religious uh, Mormons. And they, uh, in my early childhood, uh, didn't think that we should have a lot of the uh, materialistic things because the things of the spirit were so much more important. And so we lived a very transitory life. Uh, I went to 17 public schools and homeschool. Um, in my early age in particular is when we had uh, really high poverty. Uh, my parents were on welfare at one point. My brother was born in a tent when we were living in a tent in a campground. Um, and it was really uh, trying to, to follow um, my, my dad's beliefs. And that's what we did. So it was a lot of chaos and a lot of interesting moments. I'll write a book about it. <laughs> How did that affect your view of money? I think that it, because as I said, you know, w the concept was that we were really supposed to speak after or seek after spiritual or spiritual riches, that um, money was something to be uh, almost in some ways afraid of because it was a corrosive influence that the Bible says, you know, the love of, of money is the root of all evil. So I think there was the sense that um, if you were seeking or chasing after money, that you were shallow or that you were worldly or that you didn't have depth. And so I think that affected my perception earlier uh, in my young adulthood. And I had to kind of reprogram myself to say, OK, you know what? I think money could actually be something that is used to help the world. But it's it's like anything else, like a tool. It's like technology. Technology can be used for good or can be used for evil. And to, to really empower myself to, to see that money isn't something to be afraid of. Uh, it's just making sure that you know who you are and that you're using money for, for good. How did you reprogram yourself? It took a long time. <laughs> but uh, one thing that was really um, helpful for me was I, I got into the concept of Stoicism. And Stoicism is an ancient school of philosophy uh, that teaches you that life is really about how you react to things instead of about, you know, that phrase like life is, uh, you know, only 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And I, I, the more I read about Stoicism and the more I learned about this concept of uh you know, you are the master of your universe. You're the master of your thoughts. You're the master of how you respond to the um, environment around you. That really empowered me. So that was a big part of it. Uh, and so I'd recommend that to all of your listeners if you're looking to reprogram yourself to know. Uh, there's a, a formula in a book that I read um, 
ABC. There's an activating event, there's a belief about that event, and there's a consequence about that event. And so many times people just think of the world as it's all happening to me instead of uh, which is an activating event. And then they have a belief about that event. And the C is the uh, consequence or the cognitive process about that event. And most people skip that B part. They don't know that they actually uh, have a, a the power to change their belief about what's happening. They think that the stimuli and their emotional response are, are basically in, interconnected and you don't have control over it. And so the more I understood and was able to kind of break down that formula, uh, the more empowered I felt uh, to think about money, that it was something that didn't have to control me. I could control my response to it. You were raised Mormon, then left the church. How did you get the strength to do that? So uh, it was really hard. Uh, I wrote about my experience in the Washington Post. Family pressure, just because, you know, my ancestors had helped to found the Mormon church. And there are lots of aspects of the church that I still admire. I still have lots of family who are still in it. But for me, I just felt that the concepts and, and the belief in the afterlife of polygamy, that was a, that was a big sticking point for me. Um, as a woman, I just didn't think that it was inherently fair that I, in the afterlife, ostensibly could just be one of many wives. To me, that doesn't sound like heaven. That just sounded like hell. So... And I didn't even have the option to have multiple husbands if I wanted. Not that I wanted them. I just thought it was inherently sexist. So that was that was a big part of, uh, thing that I didn't like. But I think even more broadly than that, I had issue with uh, the way that the church talked about uh, its its history and its founder. Um, I felt like there wasn't transparency and there wasn't an encouragement of honest, open dialogue about the church's founding. I felt that um, they whitewashed a lot of things that were happening in the early days uh, and and created these mythologies that were not uh, given the full picture to people. And I felt, um, and it's interesting to see that a lot of younger people now, you know, from my millennial generation, they've uh, felt the same way when they, we discover things on the internet that our church leaders didn't tell us and they're true. And we, we, we go to the library or we, we, you know, you know, just do some actual research that isn't from the official textbooks from the church or the official uh, handbooks. Um, there's this huge uh, dichotomy of what the church teaches you and what uh, the science and, and the historical facts are about the founding. And so I just felt like in some ways, uh, I've said this before, that it was almost like Richard Nixon with the, the break-in with Watergate, that the cover-up was in, in some respects worse than the crime, a lot of observers say. That's how I felt about Mormonism, that, you know, the founder was a human, but they whitewashed a lot of his, his flaws and things that he had done that were, uh, in my opinion, pretty questionable. So I just didn't like that, the whitewashing of it. And so I, I didn't feel like I could continue in, in that um, environment. And so also, I'm, a, you know, my journalistic training, I just I like to ac ask questions. <laughs> and I think the church is trying to open up and be more transparent about it. But uh, I just I have too many questions. And uh, I also um, am not uh, the biggest fan of, of how historically they've treated LGBT Mormons. Uh, and that that upset me also. About three years ago, you started the online digital network Bold. How did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Well, I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs say this, that uh, it really came out of uh, frustration with the current offerings and just wanting to fulfill uh, a need that wasn't being met. And so for me, I didn't see a place where uh, we had um, a digital news conversation that was socially native, that was speaking to the millennial generation and was giving messages um, that were uh, outside of what was in the current offering. And the 
um, current uh, media environment of, of how just combative things can be. What role do you think digital news networks are going to have in the overall media landscape? I think it's tough to be one of the first movers. And, you know, we've seen that. Uh, I mean, and even the bigger established brands see this, too. It's it's that migration of the advertising dollars. It's, there's always that lag time. Uh, it was the same going from radio to network to cable and just that slog of, of the revenue. Uh, and so from cable then to digital and uh our, our fierce headwinds are the technology companies because that's where a lot of the, the revenue is going is to your Googles and your Facebooks. And that that's a whole other ball of wax that traditional media companies didn't have to grapple with. And the, the constant tension in some respects, frenemies or, you know, working with the tech companies because they own a lot of the, the pipeline of, of how to reach people. Um, how do we um, have leverage as, as content companies? Um, and I think Rupert Murdoch has uh, not been shy. He's a very bold guy and <laughs> uh, how he's uh, uh, negotiated and, and been very vocal about his views of how the content companies uh, should be compensated for what they're creating. Do you think the online digital networks replace cable companies? It will probably be just a bit more like what we have because we still have traditional network. You've got the three CBS, NBC, uh, and ABC, and then you've also got cable. So I think that cable will be around. It's just that we'll have more digital players too. Um, And what that constellation will look like will constantly be shifting and evolving. Um, We still have radio. It's just in a different format. It's Pandora or it's streaming and it's on the web. So uh, I wouldn't say replace uh, entirely. I think it's, it will supplement it and uh, be alongside it. Um, and the socially native aspect, I think, is, is a whole other new dimension because it does give the viewer and the consumer more power and more choice. And because of the nichification of media, this is where the problem of people just getting into their own echo chambers, that's what I'm concerned about uh, from a societal aspect. Coming up, Carrie Sheffield explains how she stays true to her vision despite all the noise. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Women have a more difficult time getting funding for their startups. How did you do it? Well, it's interesting. I would uh, tell your listeners who are are grappling with these issues, um, even if you're having a hard time uh, finding funding for your startup, uh, think about it this way, that you have a, a purpose for what you're doing and that purpose is very valuable, and you don't want to auction that off to the highest bidder. And to also not confuse the ability to raise money with the ability to create a successful company. The venture capital um, model, in some respects, especially in the content space, puts such intense pressure that um, we've taken the opposite route. We've really grown organically and bootstrapped and been able to find sponsors in real time and grow organically. And, and yes, it's smaller, but I compare it to, you know, the, the Aesop's tortoise and the hare, that if you can grow your company sustainably, you're going to be there for the long haul. Bold faced a trademark dispute with two giant media companies, which Bold won. What trademark advice would you give to other entrepreneurs? 
Yes. <laughs> um, we were profiled uh, by Entrepreneur Magazine about this dispute. And the editor-in-chief said uh, what I did was stupid. <laughs> so that's a great ringing endorsement because he was right. And, and so if I can help any of your listeners <laughs> with their uh, trademarks beforehand and get out in front of it, um, it would be to file your trademark before you launch. So what had happened was we had launched, uh, and I knew about the concept of common law trademark, and I never expected that these two enormous companies with a combined market cap of $20 billion would one day try to take my company's name. <laughs> and um, so it really was uh, a miracle. It was one of those David versus Goliath scenarios. But because we had been so effective at driving the news cycle and getting newsmakers and uh, just proving ourselves as a brand, we were able to defeat this dispute. So uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have filed the trademark for Bold TV as a digital streaming news network before our launch. That would be my big advice for you. Um, just do it. Uh, you know, I, I, once you start your company, there are so many moving parts, and uh, that just ended up being on the back burner. Um, we were very lucky, and that's what they said uh, in the podcast, that it was an IP lawyer on to talk about the case, and he said it was exceptionally rare uh, that we were able to pull out this victory. So protect yourself. File your trademark before you launch. Some women have given up their startups because they've had a difficult time keeping dates or having a personal life. What advice would you give them? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know if I'm your girl for this one. <laughs> um, I, was, I was actually just named on uh, Bumble's Most Inspiring New Yorkers list. And did, they did this big multimedia campaign. And, you know, they hired us people on their list to do their photo shoot. And... Um, I actually had more luck with their business app because they have three verticals on Bumble, Bumble Dating, Bumble Business, uh, and um, Bumble BFF, which is Platonic Friends. And the one guy that I liked on Bumble ended up moving to the other side of the world uh, in another country and married someone else. And, uh, so delete the, the dating vertical, and, and we actually ended up hiring someone on the business vertical for Bumble. So uh, I guess in that respect, I'm not the, the best um, <laughs> Um, example. But I would say, from my experience, uh, find a guy who understands your purpose, um, because that's why you started your company. And if you don't have uh, that partner who really is uh, completely understands you, they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be strong, strong enough, like that that song, Are You Strong Enough to Be My Man? Um, it takes a, a, a man who has incredible depth uh, to appreciate that. So I'm still looking. What's your advice for women who are struggling with the uncertainty of a startup life? Yeah, I think going back to what I mentioned about stoicism, the one of the concepts they have is uh, amor fati, which means to love your fate. And a big part of that is to love uncertainty, that you should treat uncertainty as your friend and to not think of it as something to be avoided or something to shrink from. But uncertainty is actually the condition in which you must succeed. It's not a condition that you avoid. It is actually going straight into the fire because if it was easy, someone would have already done it. Um, so you're, the whole reason you're doing a company is because you're trying to do something different and innovative. And that inherently involves uncertainty. Otherwise, you know, just stick to the regular job. You learn that people believe in people who believe in themselves. What do you mean by that? I had someone tell me once that uh, Bold was bad for students' brains. <laughs> and so to, uh, to sit through that sort of meeting and to keep a smile on your face, um, no matter what they're saying, 
because there's there are other people in the room, decision makers, who uh, are still listening to you. And maybe maybe you're you're not going to be in that division, but there's someone else who who, if you believe in what you're saying, um, you will break through. So uh, it, it goes back to the math, really. The statistical odds of your company succeeding are pretty slim. Uh, what you can, I'm sure you have all these great stats here at the Journal of how many businesses fail. Uh, only you know, 10% perhaps survive. So you have to be kind of crazy to actually believe that you're going to be in that 10%, uh, much like uh, my dear friend Clay Aiken on American Idol, to believe that you will be that one. And people voted. Well, he came in second, but, <laughs> but a lot of them voted for him uh, because he believed in, in what he was doing. You say women often get intimidated when it comes to money. What do you mean by that? We sometimes uh, think of money as, well, I think, you know, Myself coming from a very traditional, you know, male-female world background that uh, I didn't think of money as something that I was necessarily going to manage. I know, like, I have five brothers and they were allowed to have jobs outside the home, paper routes, other things. I was not allowed to have a job, so I didn't, I wasn't allowed to have any income coming in, even though I wanted to, but just was not allowed. And so that was one of those mental patterns that I had to get over that somehow, uh, men might find me intimidating if I knew how to manage money. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think also, you know, we oftentimes will take the mommy track and and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, But if you're not the primary breadwinner, it's uh, it could be a different calculus in terms of how you think about money. And um, so I think to, again, think of money as a tool. Uh, It's 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 value neutral. It's all about how you approach it. Uh, I think that could be empowering for women. What's the biggest personal finance lesson you've learned? The power of diversification um, and the power of making sure that you really understand an investment. Um, Because what had happened was I had gotten a sum of inheritance from my grandfather at age 23, but given that I had grown up in a lot of trailer parks and not being exposed to having a job or money. I had no idea what to do with it. And so I put it into um, one of my uncle's, uh, his investments, and I had I had, didn't know what I was doing. I was so preoccupied with, with my job, and uh, it was, and I love my uncle, and I still love him, I, um, but I had not really taken the time to understand this investment, and it was a very speculative, risky investment, and I ended up losing a lot of the value of the investment, and it was a big uh, wake-up call for me to realize how much I had surrendered my power and to uh, it was part of actually why I I pivoted my major into business (laughs) at the Harvard Kennedy School to study business policy because I realized how little that I knew about money and how I I actually thought of people who thought a lot about money as uh, going back to my childhood programming that they were superficial or they were kind of wasting their time when they could have been in my case for example uh, focused on public policy and politics and serving the world. But if you don't have the financial means to do it, you're not going to serve the world. So so it's really finding that balance. Uh, you said you're a registered independent who often votes Republican. What do you say to women who say it's a, in conflict to be a woman and a Republican or vote Republican? Yeah, well, funny story, because I have said this quite a bit that uh, I'm registered independent and I've decided to become a Republican uh, because of Kavanaugh. I was so really distraught about what had happened with Kavanaugh because I felt like the most fundamental human rights of 
right to trial and evidentiary process, uh, as was outlined in things like the Magna Carta, dating back centuries, were being called into question. And I think that the Democratic Party has drifted so far to the left uh, in these past couple of decades that I, I decided to become a Republican. And yes, you're right that there are a lot of voices in the media um, and in our political dialogue right now that say that if you're a female Republican, that uh, there's something wrong with you, that uh, you're not a real woman, that you don't care about empowering women. And I I would say to them, let's go get some coffee. <laughs> let's talk about this. Um, because... I believe that uh, Republican policies are um, very empowering for women, that, uh, you know, as, as a businesswoman, uh, to have a strong private sector is really the, the best way to promote human flourishing uh, for both men and women and for children as well. But, you know, we're, we're a bipartisan brand at Bold, so we debate all that. Time now for your secrets. I'm Carrie Sheffield, the founder of Bold, and my money secret is to always live below your means. That way you will always have enough. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. And be on the lookout for our upcoming ebook based on the Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.